Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. As we begin this morning, the, the passage that we have been in for the last three weeks, Isaiah chapter 9, this morning, I'm going to be speaking from just verse 7, but I want to read the context of what we're looking at this morning. So Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I was thinking about empires, kingdoms, civilizations that have ruled the world throughout human history. And there's a, I found a list of, of the largest, the largest empires, not necessarily, I mean, kind of lot, size and uh, power probably go somewhat hand in hand. But, but it's interesting to look back in history to see that the empires that have ruled the most, the, have had the largest footprint in history. The, the Persian Empire that we read in the Old Testament was one of those empires that had the largest mass of land. Uh, the Han Dynasty, no relation to Fast and Furious, but um, the Han Dynasty had a huge, massive amount of land that they controlled. The Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Russian Empire, and finally the British Empire all had massive amounts of control on geography. Yet, while they all have different ideology, they have different ethnicity, they have different uh, religious approaches and belief, they all had one thing that they had shared in common, and that is that they all ended. <laughs> they all fell apart. They all declined, and they all gave way to another power after them. There's one and only one kingdom that doesn't share this same 
characteristic, and that is the kingdom of God, which is led by King Jesus. So the kingdom of God that he establishes is the only kingdom that does not end. The kingdom of God that God has established through Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit will never, ever end. It is anchored and sustained by the birth and the death and the resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus. And Jesus' first coming and his second coming, it's, it's all one big thing that he's not far away. He's actually risen and reigning at the right hand of God. He says, I go to prepare a place for you which is marriage language of the groomsmen, of the, of the bridegroom, as we prepare and are purified for his return. And so as I was thinking, I was thinking about the New Testament end time scholar, LL Cool J, who says about Jesus, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Anyway, my mind goes weird places. <laughs> I bet you didn't know L. Cool J was a New Testament end time scholar. But anyway, weird things today. We live in a weird time. Anyway, um, Hebrews 12, 28 actually looks back at this prophet prophecy in Isaiah of this kingdom. Uh, the author of Hebrews, he says this, he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken in the midst of all other kingdoms that are shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And he's speaking about a kingdom that has the character that Travis talked about last week. This, this king who is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And so in verse 7, after we get the description of this character of this king, Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So it's interesting that we're talking about the increase of government. The, the, the government of King Jesus is expanding and is expansive and increases. How often do we describe government increase as a good thing? Like no one, no one, no one in, I don't, I would say no one in the right mind is like, you know what? I think the bigger and more powerful and the more, the more invasive a government is in my life, I, that's my kind of government. Like I love that government because I don't know what's good for myself. And I think the government is best to help me live my life. Like no one does that. And, and typically as we see expanding governments, we see them become more and more corrupt as they expand and have more and greater power. But it says that of the increase of Jesus' government, the nature of his government is that it expands and rules greater. And we even see today, Jesus' government rules in our hearts. And as believers come together, the kingdom of God is there, but there will be a point where his, the expanse of his government, the, the increase of his government will cover everything. But here's what's interesting that Isaiah connects us with. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. How often do we put an expanding government and peace together? Like you go back to the Roman Empire and there's this thing called the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. But here's my question. Was that actually peace? 
It wasn't. It was, it was kind of a lull because everyone was afraid of the consequences that would happen because of the violence of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't actually peace. You, peace is not something that happens when I am afraid to do something because I might get punished or have violence done to me. That's not peace. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like ceasefire for a while so that people can kind of have a new plan to overthrow the other people. Like what we live in history is, is, is what we experience as peace is not really peace. It's more like a, a boxing match where the, the fighters have gone to their corners between rounds. <laughs> and what characterizes our world, and, and, and I don't know, I don't know that, that our world actually understands what peace is. Because it just goes from one thing to another. You know, we had general peace for a while between the Soviet Union and the United States because of mutual assured destruction because everyone had nuclear weapons. But it wasn't really peace. In fact, we call that the Cold War. Cold War, like mild peace. I don't know what that looks like. But, 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 but it says of the kingdom of God that of the increase of this government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus' unshakable kingdom will be a forever peace with no end. One of the characteristics of this kingdom that Jesus has established is that it is an unending kingdom, that there's no end to the increase of his power, his government, and there's no end to the peace that he establishes. There's not another one waiting in the corner to take over this kingdom. It's that there is an unending peace that's there. Second uh, Chronicles 21.7 says this, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David. And since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever, it's unending. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for Davis a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, King Jesus. And in Isaiah 55, one of my, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, because it tells of the perfection and the holiness and the justice and the righteousness and the peace that will come with this kingdom Isaiah writes, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money out for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so, and so he says, look, there, 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 is this, there is this unending kingdom that will be established and the reality is this, that it will be a kingdom that is perfectly just and righteous and you will not have to have to make money to buy food but that will be provided by the perfect king who sits on the throne not only that but this kingdom that isaiah describes is not only not only is unending but it is also uninterrupted every kingdom gets interrupted by some other force and then eventually declines and gets overthrown every single kingdom is interrupted 
Every empire is interrupted except the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God interrupts every single kingdom throughout his human history. Every kingdom and empire and dynasty has been interrupted by the sovereign one true God and that kingdom has fallen giving way to another kingdom. But, but look, what, look what Isaiah says. He says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, God is establishing it and to uphold it. God is upholding it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's not a kingdom of mere might and triumph over, uh, of triumph of force over an enemy, but it is righteousness and perfect justice attainable only by King Jesus, the Messiah. Does Jesus make everything right? Does he judge his enemies? Does he judge those who have not received or accepted the free gift of salvation? Yes, he does. He comes with that judgment, but it is a patient kindness before the judgment. And when he makes that judgment, he rules in peace, not with threats of violence, but with peace for all of eternity. Psalm 45 says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so two of the, the, the characteristics of this kingdom is that it is a kingdom that is unending and uninterrupted. We have no category from, for an unending, uninterrupted kingdom in the history of humanity. We have, no, we have no category, we have no container, no bucket for that. There's no civilization, empire, dynasty, kingdom that has done that. And so in some ways for our brains to, to understand this, how can a kingdom be unending, uninterrupted? That doesn't, it's not possible in human kingdoms. So how does this happen? And, and there's this thing that, that Isaiah says that's said in a few other passages in the Old Testament, which is a statement of absolute assurance. It is an ironclad statement that nothing can derail or dissuade or, or change the direction of this. And it's the statement that he says at the end of verse seven, he says, of all these things from the very beginning, that the people walking in darkness who saw the great light. He says that the, the way that, that everyone has peace, the way that this kingdom is uninterrupted and unending, he says this, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so it is this unshakable kingdom. And it is this unending kingdom, uninterrupted kingdom, and it is also an unrivaled kingdom because the zeal of the Lord will do this. In some different translations, the, the way they translate the statement because zeal is a very broad concept, particularly the zeal of the Lord. In other translations, it says, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The Lord all-powerful will make certain that all of this is done. The Lord Almighty will make these things happen because he loves his people. The Lord of heaven's armies has dedicated himself to do it. 
The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The fervent love of the Lord of hosts shall make this happen. Zeal, I mean, it's not a word that we use a whole lot, but zeal is defined as a strong eagerness, a prompt willingness, an excessive fervor to do or accomplish a particular end. If you, if you saw biblical zeal and you looked it up and, and there was a, it was in the list of like a thesaurus of all the words that, that describe zeal, it would include love, it would include jealousy, righteousness, salvation, vengeance, tenderness, and compassion. That feels like a confusing, contradictory entry, doesn't it? How does love and vengeance somehow become part of the same word? How is jealousy and compassion part of the same understanding? How is tenderness and, and, and even envy part of that? See, the zeal is something that contains both, both God's love and his jealousy that emerges from his heart of compassion and devotion for those who are his own possession, for those he loves. This is a, is a love, this is an, a, a passion that does not tolerate rivals and it's a love that is provoked by unfaithfulness. See, the zeal of the Lord that, that, this, that Isaiah is talking about actually is part of that, that marriage picture from Genesis to Revelation that God went and he chose Israel he chose Abram and he said, I want you to come follow me and I want you to go to a land where I will show you and I will make you a people and I will make you a nation and all nations will be blessed through you. And the zeal of God, his desire for that people and to have a people of his own possession drives him in his love and his compassion and his vengeance and his jealousy and his tenderness because God will not stand for a rival. That's why God was, when you go back to the Exodus, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were not the only people who were problems in that moment. It was Israel itself because they had accepted worship of Egyptian gods. And God, having that marriage covenant with Israel, was not going to put up with a rival lover. And so really, as you look at the, the, what Moses does in, in Egypt, it is not really a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. It is a battle between the one true God, Yahweh, and all of the gods of Egypt, the spiritual principalities and powers that the Egyptians worshiped and they, and they gave honor to, this was not necessarily between Moses and Pharaoh. This was between Yahweh and all of the other gods in Egypt. And then later, as, as the Israelites went to Canaan, it became not a battle between Israel and the Canaanites. It was actually a battle between Yahweh, the one true God, and the gods of Canaan. Because God has chosen a bride and he is zealous for her. And so the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies will cause this to happen. That's why we have confidence in this kingdom that Jesus has established in his coming will be brought to fruition when he returns a second time. 
God's zealousness isn't petty, but it is how he displays his desire to protect and provide for those who are the objects of his love. This is the result of God's true love, his covenant love for his bride. Ephesians 1, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation in the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The bride prepared and purified for his return. God's covenant love is the epicenter of this plan for the world and human history. His passionate commitment to the wedding feast for the bridegroom and the bride. The whole purpose of God's activity in this world today is to put together a people that are his very own people. A people who rejected and walked away, but God calls back into a loving relationship with him. Titus 2 says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That in that last day, there will be a company of people because of the zeal of God from every nation, every language, every tribe, and every tongue who are part of this glorious family. It is God who will establish this because of his zeal. See, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies will accomplish this means that this is an absolute, certain, sure thing, period. There's two things that we walk away with this. As we, as we look at Isaiah chapter nine in these first seven verses, there's two things that I want us to remember. One is this, that peace is only peace that is eternal. Temporary peace is not actually peace. <laughs> Peace that is true peace is eternal and only God can bring us eternal peace. No one else can. And that leads to this. If we limit what Isaiah said to the advent of Christmas only, then we can't possibly understand the full meaning of Christmas. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, says this. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, by, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the zeal of the Lord of heaven 
making these things happen, that sometimes that zealousness comes out in a place of judging the wickedness and the rejection of God's desires for mankind. And at other times, the zeal of the Lord results in him giving his one and only son to die on behalf of sinners who don't want nor deserve his grace and his mercy. See, ultimately, our hope is in Christ's coming again. He came as predicted, but the consummation is not yet happened. We too, like those in Isaiah's day, we have this commonality with those in Isaiah's day who were expected to trust God, to take him at his word. We're called to the same very thing. We're called to not fear what our culture fears. Not find false security in whispered voices of culture or complex conspiracy theories, but to remember that God is in control and Jesus is coming back. Even with all the things going on around us, we can have emotional responses. We should have emotional responses to those things. It is okay to feel tension. It is okay to be frustrated. I think it's even okay to be angry or sad. But we have to remember that we don't fear that which our culture fears and we don't get taken away and hijacked by the things that are around us because we have an anchor in Christ who is coming back. See, this does not invite passivity, but genuine God-centeredness of our lives and our belief. Advent, it comes to genuine trust in God, genuine fearlessness before the changing tides of history. As we look back and contemplate how those generations leading up to the coming of Christ who heard all of those prophecies from the prophets in the Old Testament of this Messiah who would come, as they patiently waited for that, that incarnation, that Messiah to come, even though so many of them missed it, we also look forward and wait and trust the God who sent Jesus the first time, that Jesus will be coming back to take his bride who's been prepared and purified. We also at Christmas are reminded that we are called to wait and prepare for the coming of Jesus, that he did come, but that was just to start this whole thing. And that the whole plan was incarnation, birth, and death, and resurrection, and ascension, and return, and glorification of all things. That's why throughout 20 centuries of church history, Advent season has simultaneously been a time to remind us of how people waited for the coming of Christ and to help us to look forward to his coming again. In Isaiah chapter 8, before Isaiah gets to this prophecy and, and says this, this darkness has been interrupted by a great light and there is a kingdom that will never, ever end. Isaiah says this, he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. In other words, don't get caught up in the tides of the culture around you. You live there and it's real. And things, terrible things are happening. But don't get caught up in the fear and the conversation of all of those things. Don't fear and don't live in dread. Why? He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. 
What does it mean that God alone would be our fear or our dread? You have to put that together with the full character of God. Paul says that if God is for us, who can be against us? So if God is our fear and dread and he is for us, then that means we have nothing in the world, no circumstance, no person, no event to be afraid of or be in dread about because God is the only one and he is for us, not against us. And he has brought us that victory and we are in him. And so the, the prophet Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who at that time is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Isaiah saw that God was hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but he said, I will wait upon that, that one true God and I will have hope in him, even though right now his people are disobedient. And so even when we're disobedient, we still are waiting and hope we can place our hope in him because he is faithful and he is true. And he is unveiling a kingdom that will not ever end. That is the full story of what Christmas is. And so Jesus, as he was with his disciples, anticipating that, that moment that he conquers all sin for all humanity for all time and offers salvation to anyone who would respond to what he did. As he's with his disciples, he says, when you come together, he says, I want you to remember what I've done and I want you to anticipate what's coming. Remember that my body was broken and my blood was shed and remember that there is a feast waiting for you when I return. And so Jesus took the bread along with his disciples and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Take and eat of it. And then Jesus took the cup. It's so interesting because the way he described the cup was this is the cup of the blood of his covenant, which at the same time is a cup of suffering and a cup of celebration. We experience this tension all the time suffering and celebration. The incredible hard times that maybe you faced, the things that have happened in your life of, of suffering and difficulty. But at that same time, even in the suffering, we celebrate that that suffering is not forever, but there is a kingdom that is unending, that is un un uninterrupted, and is unrivaled, that tells us there is a better beautiful that we await. And so when Jesus lifted the cup to his disciples, he said, this cup represents my suffering and our celebration. So let's take and drink that together. Jesus, I thank you 
I thank you that you have established a kingdom that will last forever. That all the things that vie for our heart and our attention, even though they are heavy and weighty and we feel them intensely, that they are temporary. Our sadness, our suffering will be interrupted by your glory and already has been. Spirit, I pray that you could help us to walk in suffering and celebration. To know the sufferings of Christ, to participate with him, to experience his glory, that we can celebrate that what we may feel today is not what we will feel forever. And that that all started in a garden where you were rejected, but you would not give up. And we celebrate this week the ultimate interruption into humanity with the birth of a God-man who changed everything. So Jesus, I thank you. I pray that we would be anchored in you, that we would be confident in what you are doing. And we would be obedient and faithful to follow and carry out your mission to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.